think you know everything about the pulse oximeter? Think again. Today, we're diving deep into the topic that impacts every healthcare professional and patient, the accuracy of pulse oximeters. What if I told you they are not as reliable as we thought? Welcome to Novaminds Critical Conversations. You're tuned in to our very first episode, part one on the series, The Pulse Oximeter's Bias, A Hidden Danger. In the world of healthcare, there's a little known secret that impacts millions of lives every day. It's a hidden truth that often goes unnoticed, lurking beneath the surface of modern medicine. In February, 2021, the FDA's William Maisel MD, MPH, Director of Office of Product Evaluation and Quality warned, while pulse oximeters may be useful in estimating blood oxygen levels, these devices have limitation that can result in inaccurate reading. So join us on a journey as we dive deep into the pulse oximetry paradox. We will unveil the untold stories, challenge the status quo, and explore the groundbreaking innovations that are reshaping the future of healthcare. The objectives for learning will be that the listener will be able to identify why the pulse oximeter does not accurately display results in people of color. We'll begin with section one, the pulse oximeter in healthcare. The pulse ox. Why are we still using it in healthcare when we know what we know about it? A pulse oximeter is a small, non-invasive medical device that measures the level of oxygen saturation in a person's blood, and it typically is placed on a small part of the body, like your fingertip or your earlobe, and it estimates the amount of oxygen in the blood. The device is used to provide quick, painless, and reliable uh, ways to monitor the oxygenation of the patient's hemoglobin. It's a crucial measure in many, many, many medical scenarios and physician decisions. The gold standard for actually determining the hemoglobin oxygen saturation levels is by arterial blood sampling or your arterial blood gas, uh, which is more invasive by putting a needle in your artery and less practical for frequent testing than using a pulse oximeter. But here's the problem. When you have inaccurate SpO2 readings, which is your saturation um, in your blood of oxygen um, from the pulse oximeter, this can mask a condition known as hidden hypoxemia. This condition is more prevalent in minority groups, posing a higher risk of undetected low blood oxygen levels, which can lead to increased mortality rates. Well, I would say, or I probably would think those of People that are not in the medical field would say, well, if there is an actual accuracy bias in patients that have skin pigmentation, and this is evidence-based, and there's so many studies that show this, it really cannot be used too widely, right? No. It is such a huge part of healthcare and decision-making and is used in almost all settings. It is literally a standard of care in all countries that are developed all over the world as a continuous monitoring of oxygen Uh, saturation during surgical procedures or just in standard practice and to ensure adequate oxygen levels are in the blood. Uh, It's used in emergency rooms. It's used in intensive care units. It's used in anywhere in critical care, uh, like even the post-anesthesia recovery is routinely used for patients with respiratory distress, cardiac issues, or any condition affecting oxygenation. Uh, It's used in respiratory conditions to evaluate the treatment. Patients with conditions like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, asthma, pneumonia, 
or other acute and chronic lung diseases are often monitored with pulse oximeters. They're even used in sleep studies. Pulse oximeter is used in sleep studies to detect episodes of hypoxemia that may indicate need for a machine for sleep apnea or to diagnose the sleep apnea or even other sleep disorders. It's used in home monitoring for certain chronic conditions, again, like COPD or sometimes heart failure. Uh, doctors may recommend home monitoring with a pulse oximeter. In COVID-19, in the pandemic, it was used so widely to monitor oxygen levels in patients. Um, as COVID-19 can cause silent hypoxemia, where oxygen levels drop dangerously low without the obvious symptoms. Guidelines for specific populations, it's used also in children, it's definitely, it's used in all patient populations. It's so important to note that the pulse ox is a supplemental tool, and this is why it should be used in conjunction with other clinical assessments and diagnostics. Healthcare professionals are trained to interpret the pulse oximeter readings but they're not trained to know that there is such a bias in patients that have pigmentation in their skin. How does the pulse oximeter measure oxygen? So deoxygenated and oxygenated hemoglobin absorb light at different wavelengths. 660 and 940 nanometers, respectively. The absorbed light is processed uh, by a proprietary algorithm in the pulse oximeter to display its saturation value. So the pulse oximeter probes, they have like two light emitters and one light detector, or you can call it a sensor, and it's aligned to capture the light on the other side of the tissue bed, you know, going through the skin, or the reflection of the light from a site such as like your forehead. So in simpler terms, the, the pulse ox uses two small lights that shine through a part of the body, through the skin, like a fingertip or an earlobe, and it measures your oxygen levels. Uh, one side emits a light, and on the other side, a detector measures how much light passes through or bounces back from the skin, which is different tones that that light has to pass through to give a reading. Does anybody else see the correlation here? Darker skin, is the light gonna go through there or emit the same way that it would with very light translucent skin? Let's look at more research. And the issue of skin pigmentation and device inaccuracy, I'd like to present some evidence. We'll start by the first study, my favorite one, and a recent one. It was named Assessment of Racial and Ethnic Differences in Oxygen Supplementation Among Patients in the Intensive Care Unit, published in July of 2022 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. It was a research uh, conducted by experts from Harvard Medical School associated with Brigham and Women's Hospital and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and it indicates that the 
pulse oximeter, a standard tool in the medical practice, uh, may be contributing factor to healthcare disparities. This is due to its variable accuracy in measuring oxygen saturation across different skin tones. Um, our commitment at NovaMind is to bring awareness to such crucial findings and integrate them into our educational resources for healthcare professionals and the general public. Gottlieb, well, he was one of the authors and researchers, and they found that compared to white patients, black patients and Asian patients treated in the intensive care units had greater discrepancies between blood saturation levels detected using pulse oximeters versus levels detected in blood samples and received less supplemental oxygen than white patients. He says it's important to keep in mind that pulse oximeters give us an estimate, but it's more than just a number. We use that estimate to make clinical decisions such as how much supplemental oxygen to give a patient. This was Eric Gottlieb, HMS Clinical Fellow in Medicine at Brigham and Women's, and he continues to say it has real meaning for the patients that we care for because we can track racial disparities in treatment to these differences in measurements. The second study by Bickler et al. is from 2005, just so I can give you a reference that's a little older to show that this is not something that is new. It has been researched, it is, it, but people are aware in the research field and in the medical field, it hasn't been disclosed as widely as it should. The study two in 2005 by Butler et al. evaluating the accuracy of pulse oximeters. Researchers uh, tested three devices on subjects with varying skin tones during stable oxygen saturation levels. The study included the Nelcor N595 and Nova Metrics uh, 513 and the Nonin Onyx uh, models of pulse oxes. Assessing their performance across saturation plateaus between 60 to 100 percent, these subjects were dif differentiated by dark and light skin pigmentation. They were held semi-supine and breathed air, nitrogen, carbon dioxide mixtures through a mouthpiece while saturation levels were estimated using a mass spectrometry and compared against oximeter readings. The findings were analyzed to understand how oxygen saturation, skin pigmentation, and device bias are interrelated. The three pulse oxes that they, um, they all showed overestimation in the dark-skinned individuals that increased um, linearly as their SPO2 SPO2 levels decreased. Which this is, was an error caused by dark skin pigmentation in three different oximeters and was generally less extreme when the oxygen saturation levels were above 80% and likely has little clinical impact. But uh, they said nonetheless, in those with darker skin, an error margin of 8% has been noted at lower saturation levels, which can be clinically um, important in certain situations. For instance, patients with congenital heart disease, they often have consistently low saturation levels um, where precise oximeter reading are crucial both during medical procedures and routine outpatient care. Additionally, in the field of like high altitude medicine where discrepancies um, are seen, it's so much more important that accurate oxygen level readings are essential for both research purposes and patient care. The reliability of the pulse oxes is so important. So these are not acceptable levels of discrepancy due to skin pigmentation between different patient populations. So now let's review the context of systemic racism in medicine 
and its importance and why it's there just so we can understand why certain populations distrust healthcare system. When we make new neurological pathways with examples that stick with us, it adapts our ability to critically incorporate those new pathways when we are taking care of patients uh, in ways that maybe we wouldn't have before. It's acknowledging those biases and working around them now that we're aware. And I would like to start to make those connections with you today by giving you some background on some atrocities of our past in medicine and how they affect our patients and the way we care for patients today. So the term structural violence has its origins in the peace studies in the 1960s. Structural violence theory suggests that societal structures harm certain individuals or groups while benefiting others who uphold those inequalities. Um, this has been seen uh, over and over again, overlapping in history with law enforcement, politics, healthcare, and public health. You know, the U.S. healthcare system and healthcare in general shows racial injustice through unequal healthcare access, segregated facilities, and educational exclusion that leading to significant racial health disparities. And addressing these are crucial. And that's why I would like to share with you now some examples of different things that have happened in the past. As the first example being the enslaved black people's bodies being exploited for the development of some aspects of US medical education in the 19th century, all the way up until the early 20th century. So in this instance, medical schools actually relied on enslaved black bodies as their anatomical material. They have advertisements that were recruiting students to Southern states medical schools by ad advertising the abundance of these anatomical materials for medical education and how much higher quality education it will give them. So our medical education at that time and what has built today's medical knowledge relied on the theft, dissection, and display of bodies, many of whom were black. For example, the Medical College of Georgia purchased an enslaved man. His name was Grandison Harris. It's well-known. You can look it up. And he was hired to work as resurrectionist. 1852, to go dig up bodies, dead bodies and bring them back to the medical school so students can work on them and they could do research on them. And he actually remained in that position after emancipation. And then another example is one that's very well known, but I cannot not mention is our US Public Health Services Tuskegee study. 
for untreated syphilis. And it was a 40-year study. It began in 1932 until the 1970s and involved hundreds of black men without their informed consent. Most participants in the study were impoverished tenant farmers from Macon County, Alabama, working in a debt-based system. The disheartening portion of this whole thing is that in 1947, there was penicillin treatment for syphilis, and they were not given, deliberately denied to these patients. And they were like told that they were getting treated for bad blood and lied to like over 20 years of treatment and they didn't get any. So in the 1970s, significantly influencing the evolution of medical ethics was the Tuskegee study being discovered and deemed unethical and the establishment of our regulations to safeguard human subjects and research. Again, it seems very unfair the way we have to get our rights and our medical technology and treatments and then we have the early 20th century eugenics law that was involuntary sterilization of predominantly Native American, African American, and Puerto Rican women. Um, there was a legal basis with Buck versus Bell that supported this movement across states to pass these compulsory sterilization laws that would lead to the sterilization of estimated 60,000 people. Like North Carolina and Virginia alone, separately, each did roughly sterilize 8,000 people, where California, the largest sterilization program in the country, was done sterilizing nearly 15,000 people by 1942. A eugenicist named Harry Laughlin uh, is credited for drafting these Cal the California law that was later a model for the United States, other states. And um, it was such a great model that Hitler also adopted it in Nazi Germany for the eugenicist there. Um, from 1619 to 1865, enslaved black individuals in the USA, particularly women, suffered forced medical experimentation and treatment. Henrietta Lacks, uh, born 1920, uh, died 1951, was a woman with cervical cancer whose HeLa cells contributed to the advancing medical research in many areas, including immunology, oncology, and the development of the polio vaccine. Samples of Lax's cancerous cells were taken during her treatment in the segregated ward of none other John Hopkins Hospital and were experimented on, reproduced, and disseminated without her knowledge or consent or many, many moons later when she did find out, they refused to give her compensation. Our polio vaccine was, again, in many other areas 
of research and medical advancements, again, from a in female that was being treated in for cancer herself and not even notified that they were doing it to her. Um, then there's James Marion Sims, uh, often referred to as the father of my, modern gynecology, conducted uh, surgical experiments on enslaved black women during the 19th century without anesthesia. Um, his goal was to seek remedies for obstetric fistulas, which he got famous for, and he did. He he found a great method and made great medical advances because of this. And all these medical advances came at the expense of these women's suffering because he subjected them to repeated procedures over and over over and over and over again, retrying to do the same technique until he perfected it without anesthesia hundreds and hundreds of times. And these women were then expected to perform their slavery duties without any rest or like anything just happened. This unethical practice reflects a historical pattern where black women were denied proper medical treatment and their bodies were used for medical advancement without the provision of ethical care or respect for their autonomy. And Sims' legacy is very controversial in, to me and many of my colleagues due to these unethical practices. Okay, so next is the pulse oximeter and systemic racism today. So how did the history that I just talked about lead to today's disparities in medical devices and treatment, including the pulse ox? Well, the history of medical experimentation and unethical treatment of black individuals as exemplified by the the examples I gave you just now has contributed a deep-seated mistrust in the healthcare system among many in the black community. I mean, I don't blame them. This mistrust is compounded by the ongoing disparities in healthcare outcomes, which are partly due to the legacy of neglect and bias in medical research and practice. Medical devices and treatments, including the pulse ox, have been historically developed and calibrated on predominantly white patient populations. This bias in development and testing has led to inaccuracies when these devices are used on people with darker skin tones. For example, the pulse oximeter, which measures blood oxygen levels, has been shown to overestimate these levels in darker skin patients over and over and over again, but we continue to use them as if the problem doesn't exist. This is leading to the delayed and inadequate care of people of color. These disparities are a direct result of our healthcare system that has often ignored the specific needs of non-white patient populations, leading to a one-size-fits-all approach that fails to account for racial and ethnic diversity. The result is a healthcare landscape where we have medical devices and treatments that do not equally become effective for all the population it serves. This contributes to our ongoing health disparities. 
For example, in the United States, historical public health and disease management efforts have disproportionately disadvantaged communities of colors over and over again. Post-Civil War reconstruction failed at such a large scale to provide genuine equality or adequate living conditions for the freed slaves intentionally leaving them vulnerable to so many diseases and health problems due to the structural violence only becoming a continuation of the hardship faced during slavery. Addressing these issues requires a systematic approach that includes more inclusive research, diverse clinical trials, and reevaluation of existing medical devices and treatment protocols to ensure that they are accurate and effective across different racial and ethnic groups. Despite emancipation, significant improvements in living conditions and health outcomes for black people were largely unachieved. Today, these disparities extend through housing, employment, education, and health care, contributing to racial health gaps. This is evident in the increase in infant mortality gap between white and black Americans since the pre-Civil War era. It's been trending that way and just widening underfunded health care facilities in black and Latinx communities and then the incorporation of race and medical assessments like pulmonary and renal function tests. Addressing these issues requires a systemic approach that includes more inclusive research, diverse clinical trials, and a reevaluation of existing medical devices and treatment protocols to ensure they are accurate and effective across different racial and ethnic groups. Okay, well, we must acknowledge and learn from the shadows cast by the history that I just shared with you. It is our shared responsibility to forge a path together towards a brighter, more equitable future in medicine. So let's go ahead and move towards a solution. First of all, I think it's really important that I talk about Craig Venter, who was, um, who, he led the private company Solera Genomics um, that worked with along with uh, the National Institute of Health on the Human Genome Project. So in 2000, he made a statement during a White House briefing, and I wanted to read to you what he said there. He said, The method used by Solera has determined the genetic code of five individuals. We have sequenced the genome of three females and two males who have identified themselves as Hispanic, Asian, Caucasian, or African American. We did the sampling not in, a, in an exclusionary way, but out of the respect for the diversity that is America and to help illustrate that the concept of race has no genetic or scientific basis. In the five Solera genomes, there is no way to tell one ethnicity from another. And I'd like to note the words he chose to use and the term ethnicity instead of race at the end is a powerful statement. Just for those that don't know, and again, you can look this up because it's a very um, available uh, research project. The Human Genome Project, was it, it was a groundbreaking international research effort to sequence a map of all the genes collectively known as 
genome. Um, and it was of members of our species, sorry, the Homo sapiens. Completed in 2003, it aimed to provide a comprehensive source of human genetic information that would fuel important scientific and medical discoveries. It has laid the foundation for the field of genomic medicine, allowing for more detailed understanding of the genetic basis of diseases, individual responses to medications, and personalized medical care. That's amazing. It has paved the way for advancement in diagnosing, treating, and preventing a myriad of genetic disorders, enhancing our ability to manage patients' health at a more personalized level. It's an amazing project. What's even more amazing is it, it, it reveals that, that humans I'm are 99.9% identical at the DNA level. This emphasizes the fact that there's no genetic differences among individuals. If there is, they're minuscule. One of the critical outcomes um, is that there is no grounding in genetics that can determine that. The genetic variation that does occur, so when there is genetic variation, it occurs to be a lot more between the groups of the same race or what you call the a racial group than it is between different races. So... The underscoring that race is not a reliable proxy for genetic difference is 100% shown in this project. The findings from the Human Genome Project reinforce the understanding that traditional racial classifications have little biological basis. In essence, that supports that the notion that race is largely a social construct, not a biological one. This has significant implications for medical and healthcare and medicine as it challenges the historical use of race in medical diagnostics and treatment plans, promoting a more inclusion move towards more individualized approaches based on a person's unique genetic makeup, not their race or their skin color or the pigmentation in their skin. Please check out part two to listen to the rest of this podcast.